It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on these Thursday mornings, we're walking through what I'm calling the saga of Scripture. And it's this idea of, basically it's a Bible survey of of sorts. It's kind of a truncated or shortened version of a Bible survey. Obviously, it's near impossible to get through the entire Bible in 10 weeks. But we're trying. And unfortunately, we're still going to get through about chapter 3 of Genesis today. So we're we're just moving slow. But uh, coming soon, we're going to be flying. We're going to get like through... 20 books on one day or something, because we're going to have to. <laughs> uh, today is what I'm calling the kingdom rejected. So last week, we were kind of starting this whole thing, looking at the kingdom of the king, and is this whole idea of the creation. What, what was the purpose of creation? Was it because God was bored, and one day he just says, you know what, I, I probably need something to do. That, that's, doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like that's a good, legitimate answer. Uh, was it because he was lonely? And he says, oh, I'm going to make you so that I have someone to entertain me. No. Why? Because in the triune God, he is fully complete. So what was the whole, what was the whole deal? Isn't it an interesting thought that God doesn't need us, but for whatever reason, he just seems to want us? That he wants relationship. He wants intimacy. That he delights in revealing himself to creation. That the, when you start to look at the creation scene itself, why is God going to such great lengths to showcase his grandeur and his beauty and his life? Well, it seems like he just, he wants to share himself. He wants to give of himself. But that is his heart, you realize. Because he is love. And love, like this idea of agape, if that is central to who he is, you recognize that this holy, perfect, righteous, loving God desires to share that which he is with you. I think that's beautiful. And here he is, he creates the universe, and it's merely a reflection of who he is. And so you have this idea throughout creation, the creation scene in Genesis 1 and 2, that here is this holy, righteous God who is demonstrating, or he's giving himself, and it's all a declaration of the king and his intended kingdom. And we were kind of walking through that a little bit last week. Now, Romans eleven thirty six again, I love this passage in terms of a great enunciation of the fullness of Scripture, of all that God is doing. I think it be easily wrapped up in this one verse. It says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Do you recognize this whole thing is from him and through him and to him for his glory, renown, and praise and honor? That why why is God doing things in the earth? Well, this is from him, through him, to him for his praise, glory, and honor. Why did God do creation? Why did he create things? From him, through him, to him for his praise, glory, and honor. Why is is Jesus coming? Why, why, as we're we're walking into the fall today, and then this redemptive plan that flows out, well, why why was Jesus sent? Because this is all from him, through him, to him for his praise and for his glory and for his renown. This is for his purpose. It's so that God can have life, so he can demonstrate life to the world. That God's intent is life, relationship, intimacy. It's just phenomenal in my mind. And as I mentioned last week, as God creates humanity, you realize that one of the reasons or avenues through which God was creating humanity is so that humanity 
will be the visible representation of the invisible. In other words, here is an invisible God who wants to make himself known to his creation. That there is this king who wants to be seen as king in his kingdom. Well, how is that going to take place? And God says, oh, I'm going to make you as a visible representation of the invisible. And as I had that great quote from Ian Thomas last week, here is an invisible God who's trying to reveal himself who's invisible to a visible physical world. And how is an invisible God going to show himself to a physical visible world, but to create a physical visible you, which is going to showcase the invisible. In other words, you are designed to be the representation of the invisible God to your world. And that hasn't changed, you realize, that you are still called to go out into your world and be a physical visible declaration to your world. And there's a lot of great pictures throughout the Old Testament uh, of that. Even before Jesus came, you realize that countless times, here's David, comes upon this battlefield, looks at this giant, and says, today all the world will know that there's still a king sitting upon his throne. That God is still king over this. Why? Because you are coming down. And this is going to be a physical, visible demonstration of God's invisible power. Now you look at Elijah, and he calls down fire from heaven, and everyone falls upon their faces, which if fire ever came down from heaven, I would encourage you to fall on your face too. But hey, they fall on their faces, and they cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Why? Because it was a physical, visible demonstration of God's invisible realities and power. Do you know what you're to be? That. In this world. In fact, I'm really excited as we get into chapter 1 of Ephesians, I think it's verse 19 through 23, that is the picture, that you are this demonstration of God's reality in this world. It's exciting. So again, last week, God creates man to be this picture. Not, he's not the king, you realize. Man, humanity is not king, but he is a picture of the king. And the king gives humanity aspects of kingship. In, in fact, I'll, I'll go back here, but just follow me here. The passage in chapter 2 says you're to tend and to keep it. That, you're, that here's this garden, and you're called to tend and keep the garden. What is that? You have kingly authority over a garden. That you're to really go and multiply my image to the world. That you are called to have dominion over the fish and the plants and the animals. What is that? That it's like God giving kingdom authority to you, which is kind of a neat thought. Now, I mentioned this last week as well, that here's the creation of man, and it's, again, we're image bearers, that we're to be a picture of the invisible. And isn't it a phenomenal thought that, that the very first day that Adam lived was a day of rest? That, 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 that Adam wasn't created and then was rushed into a whole bunch of work. That Adam was created, and then God says, don't do anything yet. Just, just rest. Hey, and it's this whole idea of dependency, which I want to flesh out a little bit more uh, today. <clears throat> so here's this phenomenal creation scene, and, and as you get into about the middle of chapter 2, things begin to shift, and God begins to give more clarity to the purpose, the plan of humanity, and as we get into chapter 3, the downfall, which is what we're looking at today. So Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Uh, that word there, tend, means to work, to serve, to labor. Guess what you were created for? work. Now, it's important to note that the curse, the fall, has not yet happened. In other words, work is not a part of the curse. 
Like, oh no, Adam just fell. I guess we have to work. Bummer. Now, work got harder after the fall, but there was work prior to the fall. Isn't that exciting? Smile. I mean, this is exciting. That you are created for work. That you are called to work. That work is not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. Work was blessed. I love my work. I've got a great boss. If you were here on Tuesday, I figured I better get myself out of that ditch. But work was not a result of the fall. You were created for work. In fact, it seems like even if, uh, I don't know how far you want to push this, but when we get into the heavenly realities in heaven, you realize there seems to be work is still going on. That this is, you know, all the, all the cartoon illustrations where you're sitting on a, on a cloud strumming harps and, you know, eating bonbons with no calories and, you know, all those, that great thing that we've always wanted, eternal shuffleboard, you know, those things. It seems like that is not the picture in Scripture. That guess what you get to do in heaven? It seems like you still get to work. Why? Because work was not a part of the curse. Work is what you were designed for, which is an exciting, maybe encouraging thought. But Adam was called to tend, he was called to labor in this garden, but he was also called to keep the garden. And that idea of keep, interestingly, has this idea of to keep, to guard, to observe, or to keep watch. In other words, he was called to be a sentinel in the garden. Guess what Adam did not do? Apparently that. Because we find out in chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he snuck into the garden. Isn't that interesting? And it seems like, and again, this is partly presumption here, but Adam was not doing his job. Because if Adam was actually keeping guard over the garden, the serpent should not have been allowed in to have a voice. Just a thought. But as we enter into chapter 3, this whole scene of the fall, again, here's a serpent. It says he's more cunning, which we're going to look at in just one second. But he's more cunning than the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And this serpent looks at the woman, and he says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It was really fun. I was having dinner with the stumps last night, which was so fun. Thank you again. Uh, and we were, we were talking about funny, hard questions in Scripture, like deep theological questions, like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? It was a deep theological. That's a good question. One of the other questions that we were just kind of laughing about is that this verse I'm like, if you were in a garden and a snake started to talk to you, Eve makes it appear like it's normal. Like, oh yeah, that's every day. But if a snake was talking to me, well, let me just tell you, I would not have heard the voice. Because the snake would have popped up and I would have been out. So, uh, but that's just me. I don't like snakes, as I was reminded last night. But here's this, here's this serpent, and the serpent begins to talk to Eve, which seems apparently normal. And the serpent says to Eve, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now that word serpent, uh, nakash in the Hebrew, it literally means the shining one. And interestingly, as you follow that word through, it eventually later became known as a serpent. So however you want to interpret that or how you want to think through that is, is, is whatever. But the root of that word is the same Hebrew concept as the word hiss, as the word is shining. So in other words, it has multiple layers. What you want to do with all that, I have no conclusion, but there it is. And this serpent, this shining thing, this creature, uh, was cunning. 
which means he was wise in the sense of shrewd, crafty, sly, prudent, showing thought for the future. So this wasn't like a, well, maybe I'll just ask a question. But there was a purposeful, as, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, a while, a craftiness, a deceitfulness, intent behind the question. And the serpent looks at the woman and says, did God really say that? By the way, do you realize that is the same thing that's being stated to this day? That the agenda of the enemy is constantly attacking that which God has said. Did God really say that? Now, look at how the woman responds. It says, the woman said to the serpent, yes, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Quick question. Is that what God said? No. And here's another interesting question. Did God actually give that command to Eve? Now, it seems like in Scripture, Eve wasn't around yet. That the command was given to Adam. And Adam was to relay the command to Eve. Now, logically, this does make sense to me. So just think this through for a second. If God looks at, say God looks at me and says, Nathan, don't eat of the fruit. And then I'm to tell somebody else. I would probably say, hey, uh, God said, don't eat of that. So let's just make a rule. Don't touch it. Because if we don't touch it, we're not going to eat it. It seems safe that way, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean there was anything wrong necessarily with the statement. But it's interesting that the moment that the, that the serpent brings up a lie, brings up doubt, you realize that Eve is almost confirming that with, with the twistedness of herself. Does that make any sense? In other words, it may have been okay for Adam and Eve to say, okay, let's just not touch that fruit because that'll, that'll keep us away from eating it. In other words, let's, just, let's, keep the, let's keep the line further back. And yet it's interesting in the flow of the passage, the moment that the serpent brings up doubt and Eve declares doubt, it's like she's undermining herself even with this statement. I don't know if that makes sense, but... But the servant picks up on this whole thing, and he says, you, <laughs> come on, come on, Eve, you won't surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat, eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I've always wanted to give Eve the benefit of the doubt with this. I've, I've always wanted to. Because I want to be like God. My desire every day is to be more like Jesus. Isn't that your desire? That I want to grow in, in my intimacy, my understanding of who he is. I, I want to be more with Christ's likeness and his character and nature. I, I want that. And it seems like the appeal in this whole thing is, hey, just take the fast track. You can become more like God. And if I was Eve, I'd been like, oh, that's what I want. But you realize the lie in this whole thing? Because it's not God saying, hey, I want you to be like me. Here's a piece of fruit. God says, I want you to be like me. I, ma I made you in my image. And isn't it interesting that Eve, whether it was a good desire or a bad desire, and I'd love to give her the benefit of the doubt, even though I don't think I can. Because she, she knew it was wrong. She knew it was sin. Because God said, don't do that. But, oh, I wish I could give her some benefit of the doubt, saying, oh, she just, wanted, she just wanted more of God. But isn't it interesting, even in our modern day, 
the fact that we want to be more like Jesus, there are tons of shortcuts seemingly available, but they actually don't produce life. So let's not, let's, let's us not fall for the same thing. So here's Eve. She has this appeal before her. Hey, you can be just like God. You can know the difference between good and evil. So Eve, just, just take a bite. So look at the serpent's strategy. He brings, he arouses doubt of what God said. Did God really say that? And then he brings up denial. Oh, come on, Eve, you know you won't really die. Do you know the only way you're going to know truth from, from lie, from the enemy, is when you know the word of God. And it's sad in, in our today's culture today that we're becoming more and more biblically illiterate. In fact, there's a lot of studies that is beginning to show that we're heading very quickly into the same direction that the Middle Ages were in, in terms of biblical literacy. We have more access to this book than ever before in history. With all the digital stuff, with, all the, with the printing press, with all the... I mean, we have more access to this book, the words of this book, as well as the depth of study of this book than ever before in human history, which is incredible. And yet we know this less and less as a culture. And you realize how dangerous that is? That the moment that the enemy looks at you and says, did God really say that? If you don't know this, you actually don't know if he said that or not. In other words, the only safety we have to live out the Christian life is we have to be in this book. Or we will not fully understand when we hear a lie. And of course, there's that old illustration, uh, if a bank teller. How does a bank teller know a real $100 bill from a fake $100 bill? Well, that's easy. Every single week, if you didn't know this, every single week, bank tellers have to take a seminar called Fake 100 Bills 101. And every week they get all the new updates of like, hey, here's what they're doing to fake, you know, to create fake $100 bills. So if you see any of these issues, you know, make sure you report it. And every week they have to go to this class. It's about three hours long every single week to learn what's wrong with $100 bills today. That's not true. Why? Because you know, there's, there's always a new method of creating a, 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 a fake $100 bill. How are you going to know a fake $100 bill? They tell bank tellers, don't even look at the fake ones. Spend so much time with the real thing that the moment you see anything that's not the real, you immediately know it's fake. Wouldn't it be neat if we had that with this? That if we got into this book to such a degree where anything that's not of this book, we just immediately go, I don't know what it is, but it's just wrong. Can you describe it to me? I know, but I know it's wrong. Why? Because it's not this. Do you know what you call someone who lived like that? We may have to call him a Christian. <laughs> but we need to be in the book, folks. Because that, that is our only guard against the lies of the enemy. Because otherwise, how are we going to know they're, they're lies? So when you look at the serpent's strategy, here, here's the serpent. He arouses doubt, and then he brings denial to what God has said. So look at what Eve does. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that a tree was desirable to make one wise... She took of its fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Do you realize what Eve did? In fact, let me just break this down for you. What was Eve's decision? Number one, she declares a lie. Number two, she changes her focus. So here's a, here's a doubt presented. There's a lie available. 
And Eve declares that lie, turns her focus to this tree and goes, wow, look at that tree. It is really good. I need that tree. And it says that she desired the fruit. In Hebrew, the word actually means to lust. Oh, she just had to have it. Oh, she was craving it. And again, lust can be sensual, but not necessarily. Right? In other words, I love chocolate. Oh, I'm a big chocolate fan. And there are days when you're just like, I have to have chocolate. I, I will go, I will drive three miles out of the way just so I can have chocolate. What is that? That's called lust. <laughs> and that's what Eve was doing. That Eve saw this tree, and she began to, she changed her focus, and she began to see that this tree actually has something great. And she goes, oh, I really, oh, I need that tree. Oh, I just, I really have to have that. And then she began to crave it where nothing would satisfy her outside of that. And isn't it interesting that this is not said, you recognize in Scripture, but it's like the undercurrent of what Eve's action declares is that God hasn't provided everything that I need. Now, we know, biblically, that God has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Everything that we need for life is found in Jesus. But the moment that we live in sin, what that is actually declaring by our actions is that actually God is insufficient. That he hasn't provided all that I need. Why? Because apparently there is something outside of him that I need to go to to satisfy some reality of my life. Do you realize how sad that is? And as a Christian, when I begin to live in sin, not only is it polluting my personal life, but what that begins to declare to the world around me is that God is insufficient. So here's God. He makes humanity. And why did God make humanity? So that humanity would be this declaration to the world of who he is. So the moment that I choose in my own selfishness and sin, that I want to live in sin, what I am now declaring to the world is that God is not enough. That God is not who he said he is. That God is now a liar. That the only way I'm going to find fulfillment and satisfaction is outside of him. Is this making sense? So Eric has this phenomenal session, <clears throat> which you need to listen to, called The Two Trees. And <clears throat> I'm not going to go through any of that. But I want to show you this picture, if you will, of this decision that he was making. In the garden, we are told, now there's a whole bunch of trees, right, that was created. But there are two specific trees that are mentioned. One was the tree of life. Guess what, was, what, guess what it was there for? Life. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Sorry, not, not a trick question. <clears throat> and then we have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't it interesting that this is not an evil tree? I've, I, all growing up, I always thought, this is a bad, nasty tree. Why? Because if you eat it, <clears throat> fall. But this isn't the tree of evil. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, the underlying reality of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really independence. Because when you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what you're declaring is, in and of myself, I am going to determine, in my own knowledge, what is good and what is evil. Well, what is the tree of life all about? Dependency. That I'm going to have to rely upon a life source outside of myself to survive. What is that? That's dependency. And you realize that 
as Adam and Eve were created, they were called to live in dependency. That's seen by the fact that they, the first day was a day of rest. But not only that, but they were to live by the tree of life. Meaning they were to be dependent upon something outside of them. They were to be dependent upon God. And so here in the fall, Eve takes the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and she partakes of it. You realize what she's declaring in that partake, partaking is the fact that I, in and of myself, am going to determine what is good and what is evil. Is that even possible? Look at what Proverbs says. Two times in the book of Proverbs it says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. Biblically, there's this idea of rightness. There's two ideas of rightness in Scripture. There's that which I think is right. And so I'm going to live according, accordingly out of my own thought process, out of my own talent, out of my own ability, out of my own resource. <clears throat> and it's that kind of right. So I look at a situation and say, that's right. And I live out of myself. There is that in Scripture. And there's this whole idea that I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live out of the perspective, the wisdom, the talent, the resource of God Almighty. It tells us uh, in, in the book of Kings that how David, King David lived prior to Bathsheba. It said that David always, always, and in the, in the, by the way, the word Hebrew, the, the word always in Hebrew, the literal definition means always. So David always lived according to what was right in the eyes of God, except one time with Bathsheba. The how did David live? David was constantly living not in his own wisdom. David was living not in his own resource. How did David live? In the resource, the perspective, the talent, the ability, the wisdom of God. But there was this one time when David turned within himself and he says, what, I'm gonna, what am I going to do in this situation? How am I going to live in this moment? And he determined what was right in his own eyes and he committed sin with Bathsheba. And I don't know about you, but there's so many times that I have lived where I said, this is right, and I found it was completely wrong. Do you realize you were not called to live out of your own rightness? You were not called to live out of what you think is proper and correct. You are called to live out of the resource, the perspective, the ability of God himself. It's the tree of life idea. So rather than partaking of the tree of life, what does Eve do? She partakes, and in independence, she partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that she herself can determine what is right and what is wrong. And it tells us, Paul, Paul tells us in Corinthians, that when Adam took the fruit, he was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was rebelling. He was living in independence. Do you realize you were not made for independence. You were not made to think out of your own perspective, this is what is right. That you were called to live in dependency. Now for clarity, you realize dependency is not passivity. It's not sitting back saying, I'm not going to do anything until God forces me to do it. I'm going to sit on the couch, watch television, eat potato chips, and if God wants me to evangelize, fine. He'll have to kick me off the couch and force me to do it. That's not dependency. In fact, more often than not, when you're living dependent, you're going to be more active than if you're independent. So we're not talking about a lack of activity. We're not talking about passivity. When we're talking about dependency, we're talking about the, the source of your life. What's the engine of your life? Is God the resource, the source of your life? Or is yourself, flesh, sin, the source of your life? You are not meant to live on your own. 
You're meant to live in the resource, the ability, the triumph, the wisdom, the talent, the ability of God Almighty. Now, do you get to make decisions? Of course you get to make decisions. I decided whether or not I was going to brush my teeth today. And if you want to find out what I chose, come up and smell my breath. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's still functionality. But you realize that as a, even as I'm brushing my teeth, I don't want to brush my teeth out of my, I'm going to produce it. It's God. Will you somehow? And I don't know how to describe this well because it's, it's, it's abstract at some level. But you realize that I'm to live every moment of my life dependent upon his resource. That is how we were made. And what is sin? Sin is turning over and saying, oh, I can do this myself. So if I can say it another way, self-sourcing is sin. Isn't it interesting as you come to the New Testament and you begin to look at all the lists of sin? For example, Galatians 5 has a great list of sin. Drunkenness, murder. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Adultery, right? All that stuff is considered sin. Why? Because you realize every time those things happen, it's always self-sourced. The Spirit of God is never, ever, 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 ever going to look at you and say, oh, I have an idea for you. Commit adultery. The Spirit is never going to do that. Why? Because that is completely against the nature of God. So if I'm going to commit adultery, guess what I have to do? I have to turn within myself and produce adultery out of my own ability. Does that make sense? That's called self-sourcing. And that is always sin. Now that makes sense with a whole bunch of lists. But you realize scripture doesn't give you a complete list. Which is actually great. <laughs> because if it gave us a complete list and we would follow that complete list, we would look at that list and go, oh, I did it. Aren't I amazing? God's so lucky. Do you realize any time that I turn within myself, it's sin. Well, what about preaching? Preaching's great. I know. Do you realize preaching could be sin? How? <gasps> when I come up and I am not dependent upon the Spirit of God in my life, and I say, God, once you sit this one out, I think I've got this. And out of my own ability, out of my own resource, out of my own intellect, I begin to proclaim something, even though God may use that in your life, for me that was sin. Why? Because I produced it out of myself. And biblically, every time that happens, that's called sin. Does that make any sense? So this is not, hey, give me a list of do's and don'ts. This is anything could technically fall into sin if I'm the one producing it. So quit producing it! Why don't we live by the Spirit of God? Why don't we allow His Spirit to come and feel and change us? And one of the results of the fall is that we feel like we are to be independent. That, that we want to do everything for ourselves. And even as we become Christians, look at the church, you see this all the time. That in the church, what do you see? You see selfishness and arrogance and pride. And I'm going to do this. And it, well, I'm going to do this for God. And isn't God lucky? And, and God wants my talent. No, he doesn't need your talent. He might use your talent. But as we've said before, he can make rocks sing better than you can. So he doesn't need you. He, he may, hey, he wants you. He wants to use you. But he doesn't need you. And you were not called to live in your own ability and your own resource. You were called to live in the strength and the power and the resource of your God. And so what was the great fall of the sin? Independence. Do you realize that every single temptation that confronts our life is always about independence? Turn over to Matthew and you look at the temptations of Jesus. Do you realize that the, of the three temptations that we have, that Satan is confronting Jesus? Do you know what the... The core of every single one of those temptations is all about 
independence, self-sourcing. Jesus, there's a whole bunch of rocks. You're really hungry, aren't you? Hey, why don't you revert back into yourself? Hey, don't depend upon the Father. Hey, hey, you're God, right? So turn back into yourself, and out of your own God ability, zap those rocks, make them bread, then you can eat. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm dependent upon the Father. I'm not going to live out of my own resource. Jesus didn't even live out of his own resource. He was constantly being dependent upon the Father via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can just, any, any temptation you look, it's always an issue of independence. It's always an issue of self-sourcing. So let me just give you one other quick thought here. Isn't it interesting, between chapters 1 and chapters 3 of Genesis, there are seven life forms, and that's not a fair word. Okay, I understand this. But that's where I'm going to pick. There are seven life forms that are mentioned. At the very bottom, we have plant life, right? Day three, plant life. And there is a measure of life. Now, they can't talk to us, right? <laughs> as far as I know, right? So, but there is a life within plants. And above that, there's fish life. And if you look at the days of creation, this is literally how it's built, right? That plants, and then there were fish, and then above them there are birds, and then above them are land animals, and above them are humans. And then in chapter 3, we find out that there's this whole group of things called the angelic beings, right? There's angels and seraphim and cherubs, cherubim, right? That there's this angelic thing going on, and they're actually a life form, if you want to call them that, even above us. And then so far above all of that, and I had to squeeze it down to put it on this chart, okay? But so far above all of that, there's God. Now, to call him a life form is not fair, I understand. So it's just semantics. Just, just bear with me, okay? But there are seven life forms in the universe that we know of. You are called to be a reflection, a demonstration of God. But you are two life forms below him. Do you know how we in the church tend to operate? God says, be holy as I am holy. The woo of the New Testament, the declaration of the New Testament is, hey, become more Christ-like. Let him form his character and nature within you. And so do you know what we do in the church? We do this. Yeah, we create these bracelets that says WWJD. Whoa. What would Jesus do? Now, in the late 1800s, when Charles Sheldon wrote his book, In His Steps, it was one of the most, it was a runaway bestseller. It was, so, it was so big, it was so popular, so awesome. And what's the whole book about? What, is, what would Jesus do all about? It's any situation you get in. You stand there and go, okay, in this moment, what would Jesus do? And I'm going to do that. That's not Christian, folks. It's not. Why? Because you can't do it. You, look at this. You are two life forms below God. So here you get to this challenging situation, and you stand there and say, all right, what would Jesus do here? He would probably love that person. All right, I'm going to love you. All right, I'm going to try to love you. And out of my own resource, I'm trying to produce something that only God can actually do in my life. Does this make any sense? Uh, Jesus was walking around, and he says, you know how I'm living? I'm living by the resource of the Father. 
Do you think Jesus was walking around and had a WWFD bracelet on? And every time he would get to a situation, here's this sick man. He, he goes, all right, hold on. What would the father do? What would the father do? Well, he'd probably heal him. All right. Do you think that's how Jesus lived? No. He was actually sourced by the father himself via the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't need to wear a WWFD bracelet. Why? Because he just had the life of the father within him. You... Trying to mimic God, WWJD, you trying to mimic God is just like two life forms below us trying to be a human. Could you imagine? Here's this parrot. And this parrot goes, I want to be like a human. And so he goes out and gets on Amazon and, and buys this WWHD bracelet. What would humans do? And he puts a little bracelet on its leg, and he's, he's strutting around like a cool human. And suddenly there's a situation, and he turns within his feather brain, and he goes, oh, what would humans do? Now, did you know that parrots can mimic? Yeah, they can. They, hey, they can talk like humans. It's impressive. They can strut like some humans, Right? Yeah, they, they eat food like humans, right? They eat crackers, right? But you recognize it's an imitation. It's mimic. Because you would look at the parrot and say, parrot, you are not a human. Don't say that to me. I've got a bracelet. No, you are not a human. Do you know how foolish it is as, as believers for us to be walking around just saying, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And not have the life itself. As if I, in and of my own ability, in my own resource, in my own intellect, can produce the very life of God. I can't produce that. The best I can do is mimic it. But you, as a Christian, are not called to mimic. You are called to live it. So what is the only option you have? Don't live in independence live in the dependency and the resource of our God. That at the fall, what took place? A choice of independence, which has now cursed us, and we now have a propensity for independence. But as a Christian, you know what you're called to? Rely upon him. Depend upon him. That doesn't mean you're passive. You get to still make choices. Hey, live in the wisdom that God has given you. That is all true. But you realize that the source of your life, the resource of your being, the intellect of which you should be thinking from is not you, it's him. And just as a branch cannot live on its own, but must be connected to the life source of the vine, so too you are to live by the life of the vine. And the life of the vine is to come out into the branch and produce fruit. John 15. It's this. Vine and branch stuff is not what would the branch do, or sorry, what would the vine do? Vine and branches is you have to have the life of the vine itself. And as a believer, though we have chosen independence, just like Eve did, what is the calling upon our life? To reject a life of independence, to reject the flesh and the, and the dominion of sin, and to live by the life of Jesus Christ. And his resource. The fact that that's even available because of the cross of Christ is 
amazing to me. It is dumbfounding to me that I can have the life of God himself that I'll merely have to mimic. So stop trying. Stop mimicking. I love this quote by Ian Thomas. He said, it takes God to be a man. We could just stop there. That's a great quote. It takes God to be a man. Man, that is, as God intended man to be. God created a man to be inhabited by God for God. This is not about independence. This is about his life indwelling you, resourcing your life. That is how a Christian lives. So let me close with this. You realize that we have rejected the kingdom. That God created this phenomenal kingdom where the king was to be seen. And what was the choice that Adam and Eve made? Psst, we don't need you. Why don't you sit this thing out? I'm going to live for myself. And this kingdom was rejected. But do you realize that God's heart is so immense that he will not let humanity just reject him? As Paul says, while we were yet enemies, while we were living in rebellion, while we were shaking our fists in God's face, Christ died for us. And you see that even in this scene. Because immediately what begins to happen is that here's Adam and Eve and they sin. And what does God do? He sheds innocent blood on their behalf. Think of how profound this is in light of Jesus Christ. It says in Genesis 3.21, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Every scholar that I've read says that prior to this point, no animal had ever died. That in the fall, here's Adam and Eve, and they choose independence, they choose sin. And God says, I have to have that covered. That here you are, and, and of course, you know, they see themselves naked, and they, they sew some fig leaves together, which could not have been comfortable. I mean, that's just, it sounds itchy. But here they sew some fig leaves together, and they're trying to hide their sin. And God says, that's not, that's not going to work. And how often in the church today that when we sin, we try to just sew some fig leaves to hide our sin. But it doesn't work. What does it demand? Innocent blood. And the picture here is God takes this little, and likely it was a lamb. He takes this lamb and he kills the lamb, sheds innocent blood on behalf of those who sinned, and then takes the skin of that little lamb and covers Adam and Eve. That innocent blood was shed for sin. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. And it's a symbol, it's a foretaste of that which is to come in fullness and completion. That what was done in part here, just to merely cover, is going to be done in, in fruition or in fulfillment or in climax in Jesus, where sin itself will be taken away. It won't just be for covering any longer. And Adam and Eve were covered. And if you want to take it one step further, do you realize that Jesus bore our curse? This is so beautiful to me. And we don't have time to go through this, but I'll just show it. When you look at the curse that came about, with Adam and Eve and the serpent, right? Because God confronts Eve and she says, or sorry, God confronts Adam and he goes, it's the woman. And then Eve says, no, it was the serpent. And then there's all these pronouncements of curse, right? One of the facts, one, one of the curses was that the ground itself was going to be cursed. Labor is going to be hard. Isn't it beautiful that just as the ground was cursed, we are told that Jesus himself became cursed for us, that he bore the curse? 
That just as it says that man was going to eat sorrow, there's going to be difficulty. Jesus himself is called the man of sorrows. That thorns and thistles happen because of sin. That there wasn't thorns and thistles prior to the sin. And what happened in the, in the, in the fall? Thorns and thistles came about. And on the cross, what was Jesus wearing upon his brow? The symbol of the curse. That as he was dying, as you looked upon his face, upon his brow, that the sign of the curse he was wearing as a crown of victory. That is stunning. That just as there's going to be sweat of brow, Jesus sweat blood. Just as dust, just as we were to return dust, uh, just as dust to return to earth, uh, Jesus ate the dust of death. Man was called now to die. Jesus died on our behalf. That he bore the fullness of the curse found in Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that beautiful? That it wasn't that just Jesus atoned and just forgave. He took the curse itself that was the result of sin. And he says, I'm taking it upon me. That's our Jesus. And so though we have rejected the kingdom, you realize that God is beginning to establish a plan. And now technically the plan has been established prior to the creation. Right? So it's not like, oh no, Adam and Eve just sinned. What are we going to do? Plan B. No, no, no. God has always had a plan. He's always had a redemptive desire and plan. But we begin to see at this point that this redemption is going to start spilling out as God begins to go after his people. Which is what we're going to get into next week. Boy, these times just go by fast, don't they, Eric? Mercy. This is the last thing. Do you know what flowed out of Adam? Death. And there's countless pictures of this. It's so beautiful in Scripture when you see that that which flows out of Adam is death. But let me just give you one picture of this. In Genesis chapter 5, it talks about the lineage of Adam. And it literally goes from Adam unto Noah. Ten generations. Do you know what flows out of Adam? Death. And just listen to this. And if you want to listen to more of this, Eric has a whole session called The Lineage of Majesty. But when you look at the meaning of the names, again, names in the Old Testament specifically aren't just a name. They're very significant. They're about character and uh, it's a picture of something. When you look at the meaning of names, Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh, his son, means mortal, frail, or miserable. What a horrible name, by the way. Could you imagine? Coochie, coochie, coo. What do we name him? Let's call him miserable. Frail, mortal. Uh, Canaan or Canaan means sorrow or a dirge or an elegy. Mahalel means the blessed God. Jared is, comes from the same verb or the root that means shall come down. Enoch means a commencement or a teaching. Methuselah, who lived the longest on earth, means his death shall bring. By the way, do you know what year the flood happened? The same year that Methuselah died. Because his death is going to bring something. Isn't this neat? You can study that later. Lamech means despairing, and its root means lament or lamentation. And Noah means comfort and rest. That if you stand back and look at just the line of Adam, from Adam to Noah, ten generations, what comes from man? Death. But what was God's plan in the midst of this? Listen to this. Man is appointed for mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching us, that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. That's the gospel. Even in the names. Isn't that beautiful? That even in the midst of this fall and the rejection of the kingdom, God has a plan to restore and redeem. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you.
Lord, thank you that your plan is redemption. Thank you that your plan is to redeem. Thank you that your plan is not just to live us, let us live in this independent rebellion. Lord, thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Lord, hey, we just repent for any times or any aspects of our life where we're still living in rebellion or we're living in independence, where we are living self-sourced, where we're living saying, hey, God, I have this. Why don't you set this aside? And hey, why don't you sit, sit, sit aside? I'll, I'll pull this off on my own. Lord, we are not called to live like that. Lord, I don't want to be a parrot mimicking you. I want to be a Christian full of the life of you via your Holy Spirit. And yes, you've given me wisdom to process and think through and make decisions. And, and yes, I'm not called to be passive. But Lord, I want the source, the engine of my life to be you. So, Lord, would you just grow in my life? Would you make me more like you? And thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That while we've rejected the kingdom, and while there seems to be no hope, and the only thing that comes out of this is a curse, you bore the curse for us. That there is still hope. Why? Because you have a redemptive restoration plan. Even in the midst of the greatest tragedy in human history, the fall. So, Lord, I pray as we move into this, the rest of this day and the rest of this week, Lord, I just pray that we would not live of ourselves. We would live by you, through you, and to you. That our whole life would be just a demonstration of your life. Not because we're wearing a bracelet or not because we're trying to mimic, but because we just have the fullness of your life within us, resourcing how we're living. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every moment we need you because we cannot do this on our own. What an amazing reality, Jesus, that you're calling us into relationship even after our rebellion. Now we can have life and freedom and triumph and victory and hope and peace because of the cross. And now intimacy with the King of kings and lords of lords is possible so, Lord, would you, the king, have your kingdom established, even if it's just in my one little life. But may that flow out of me, and may it just begin to turn the world upside down. May your kingdom and kingship be seen in this world once again, Jesus, through the lives of those in this room. We love you. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.